The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to consider it. Will you now open it to us and teach us? Send your spirit here to our midst. Cause him to have his way with our hearts and minds to gain control of us and shape us and build us up for our good and for your glory. Teach, we pray, Lord. Thank you. Amen. In preparation for getting our dog last year, I read quite a bit about dog training. And one book had one particular statement that struck me and is very helpful to me when I remember it. The author wrote, your dog is not a little person in a dog suit. <laughs> Point being, it's a beast. It works on instinct, driven by powerful urges that are, that are hardwired into it, that's programmed to, to move this way and to act this way and to pursue this and to feed that appetite unthinkingly. And it lives in relationship, it looks at all relationships in the sense of a pack. Somebody's up, somebody's down, and trying to figure out who that is. There's, there's always an order, and there isn't any kind of loving equality, and there's no sacrificial service of others who are beneath. And it's trained by repetition and by pain and reward. Can't reason with it. It doesn't plan for the future and, and think things through and, and set aside to defer gratification it doesn't, so it can make a wise choice to, to like prepare for something that's coming. It doesn't reason with, we, with you. It doesn't speak English. It never will. And when you want something to happen, too many words just confuse things. Don't talk to it like a person. It isn't one. The dog's a beast, not a human, and that is not a criticism. The writer of this book and all of us who own pets and have animals around us, we, we like them, we love them, we, we connect with them. It's not a criticism, it's just an important reality. It's not a person in a dog suit. Now, I'm no expert dog trainer, of course, and certainly there's more that could be said on the subject, but obviously that's not the point for today. I only bring this up because it might help us begin to think about this passage in 2 Peter 2 that's before us this morning. Begin to help process it and kind of get our minds around it. As you recall, Peter in this book is writing to confront a problem that the Christians in that day faced and which all Christians since, including us today, still face. The presence of false teachers arising from within the Christian community of the church. People who seemed to be us. And in some ways, still talk like they are. They still act like they are in some ways. They, they still affirm some basic Christian truths while at the same time denying critical components of the message such that what they're teaching, what they're living actually is not the Christian faith at all. Now the main thing they deny, we've touched on this before, he's going to get into it in chapter 3. The main thing they deny is that Christ is in heaven reigning and is going to come back to judge everyone. 
and set up his kingdom. They, they say no to that. And then, therefore, additionally, the corollary of that, we saw this last time we were in 2 Peter. This is in 2 Peter 2, verse 10. They also despise, they reject God's authority now because if he's not in heaven reigning, then he's not in heaven reigning. There is no authority now, no divine outside rule. And that means then, naturally, that what is my guide is me and what I feel and what I long for and what I want. They follow after their urges and their desires, their passions. Peter picks right up, picks up right there, middle of verse 10, further describing what the false teachers are like and what the life they lead is like, so as to alert us to it, to point it out to us, help us identify it, and also to show us the outcome, the fruit of that life, that, that teaching, so that we'll avoid it. Maybe I can put it this way. We are not mere dogs dressed in people suits. We are humans. We are people made in God's image. And that is remarkably special and precious. But the path that these false teachers are on and calling you towards that the world is full of, it's the path away from true humanity. It's the path of the beasts. It's wrong, but it's also terrible. It's awful. It's subhuman and ugly, not what we're made for, not what we want, and not what the church is supposed to be but it's around us. And so we're going to consider that this morning in the middle of 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 10. I'll, I'll begin at the beginning of the verse, which itself is the beginning of a sentence, in the middle of a sentence. And I'll read down through the end of the paragraph, verse 16, and then draw two observations. 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. I'll stop there. Second Peter 2. Two observations. Here's the first. Warnings to us. Beware the false teaching that turns people into strong-willed creatures of instinct. 
Beware the false teaching that turns people into strong-willed creatures of instinct. This whole passage is a description of false teachers, what their lives look like. Verse 10, he starts off by calling them bold and willful, which is not a compliment. The two words are very close to each other, and they're close to a whole collection of other words like arrogant, proud, stubborn, hard-headed, strong-willed, self-absorbed, etc. Not a good family of words. The opposite of humble and careful and thoughtful and considerate. Gracious, kind. That's what they are, and it shows itself in, in a particular way. They don't even tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, he writes. Now, to blaspheme is to make a slanderous accusation or attack, to cut somebody down. And we tend to use that word only in relation to God. But originally, anybody could be blasphemed. Anybody can be slandered and torn down and, and trampled on. In this case, they blaspheme the glorious ones, which I think is a reference to angels. That would be the most natural way to understand the phrase, glorious ones. That's what Jude means when he uses similar language. And of course, as we've seen, Peter is drawing on a lot of Jude right here in this chapter. So I think he's talking about angels. But to be fair, this could be a reference to various other, maybe great human beings, Old Testament saints, maybe other supernatural beings, because Peter has rearranged a few things and he might be saying something just a little bit different. I think he's talking about angels, though, but in the end it doesn't really matter for Peter's point because his point is that these guys are just people, mere people, and they shouldn't be so presumptuous as to slander the glorious ones, whoever exactly they are. The glorious ones are higher than them, and these guys are so arrogant and so willful, they have come to the spot where they think they have the right to tear these glorious ones down and trample them in the mud. And they don't even tremble when they do it. Verse 11, angels don't even act like that. Mighty angels don't talk about the false teachers like that before God. They don't even level a blasphemous accusation against these false teachers before God, though the false teachers deserve it. The angels would say, I'm not into blaspheming, I'm not into slandering, and I'm an angel. But these guys are so willful and strong-willed. Mere people, they presume to have the right to tell off the glorious ones. It's astonishing. But it fits. Verse 12, they are like irrational animals. That is, they're like animals which are irrational, not thinking things through with rationale. Animals, creatures of instinct. This is the heart of it. It's the, it's the devastating verse in this assessment. And it's tragic because of what he's assessing these false teachers have become like beasts like those born to be caught and destroyed. Have you ever heard a cow called beef on the hoof? Hamburger wrapped up in leather, standing on four hooves? It's 
a rather inelegant and maybe even a bit of a crass way of describing a cow, but it gets right down to the basics. Cattle are bred, born, and raised to be rounded up and slaughtered and used by us. That's why. That's what they're for. And they don't know any different. They don't know any different. It's what they're for. They are not dreaming of some career off in Manhattan at some point that it gets thwarted by a rancher. No cow is imagining her later years on the back 40 with her calves so they can just kind of like hang out and enjoy life. That's not in their minds. They're not thinking about next year or five years from now. They're not thinking down the road. They live in the here and now. They are beasts. They don't know any different. They don't care any different. Now, please, do not hear me say and do not read into that any kind of a license or any kind of animal cruelty. I'm not saying that. We are made to rule over the earth as God's vice regents, that is, his sub-rulers. And we are to rule over the earth to husband it like God, wisely and carefully and, and kindly, with, with compassion, not with cruelty. But that all is another discussion. What I'm trying to make us see here clearly is that Peter is working on an assumption that has been true from the very beginning when the creation of all things, there is a stark line between people and every other creature. The smallest instincts of the largest mammals. People uniquely, people alone are not like the beasts. People alone are made in God's image. And so human beings alone are not mere animals devoid of rationale. We are made to rise above our instincts. We are not born only to be caught and slaughtered as food and used as fuel for the higher creatures. We are the highest. We are unique by God's creation. We are human. But what these false teachers are bringing in and what they have been consumed by and been shaped by and they are so far down the path they have been destroyed by and they're trying to spread is teaching that reduces people to live lives like the lowly beasts. They are busy giving away, throwing away, in fact, what is the crowning glory of our difference. We have a higher purpose. We human beings, we have a higher purpose. We have a higher way of living. We have thought and choice and wisdom and morality. We, we are made to live above our urges and above our instincts, to evaluate what's true, to make decisions about it, and sometimes choose contrary to our feelings. Follow that. Not slave to them like the animals. They throw all that away and instead say, if you feel it strongly right now, that's who you really are and that's right and proper, pursue it, do it, embrace it, that's you. So like the beasts, so dehumanizing, so subhuman, so tragic. If it seems right in your gut, at least right now, really strongly. I mean, if you, then that's who you are and that's who you should be. Go for it. You only live once after all. Make it a good one. That's how they live. That's what guides them. 
They're so loud and proud and headstrong that they slander and throw away and throw around all kinds of comments about all kinds of stuff they have no understanding of whatsoever. It's tragic irony then that living like the beasts, they will be destroyed like the beasts too. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Destruction for destruction and wrong for wrong. Really could translate that ruin for wrong. He's repeating the words twice to make this point. They get what they deserve. You want to live like a beast? Die like one. You reap what you sow. Now, even in this life, this, this life of living like an animal is so very destructive in its subhumanity, but it's also coming towards a judgment at the end. We need to understand this. Be aware of it. And, and I would say conversant with it, to think these things through for ourselves and so that we're able to talk with others about them so they can, re, they can resist this type of teaching that Peter's confronting it here and it's all around us in our world. Sometimes it's actually in the church, but if it's not exactly in the church, it's all right around us. It's coming to you on the feet in your pocket. Our world is full of this today. But we need to be able to, to engage with people and say, do you not, are you not, don't you sense that you are more than just a creature of instinct? See, there's something here that, there is, there's a lot to logical argument, but there's also a lot to kind of the sense of things. The sense of things. We should be able to converse with you about the sense of things. That don't you sense that you're more than just a creature of instinct? I mean, you're, you're being told that what you feel is right and who you really are, but don't you know that you constantly ask the question, why? Why? Why am I here? What's this for? What's the purpose of all this? What, what's the end goal here? What's, what's the point? What's all this about? What's the meaning of this? Your dog never asked that, not once. No cow ever pondered the meaning of life. Far side excluded. Right? That's what makes the far side funny. Gary Larson makes cows think like people, and we all know they don't. No cow ever felt like that, but you do all the time. Something in you senses justice and truth and is grieved and irritated by injustice and deceit. So unlike the animals. You're more than that, and you should be alert to that and very, very suspicious of and run fast and far away from any teacher or any teaching that's going to turn a person, turn people into strong-willed creatures of instinct who live for their lusts. That's subhuman. But it is all over the world today, particularly in the areas related to sexuality and sensual pleasure. That is the narrative in the world right now. And what I'm talking about is that we should more than just say, wrong. We should say, tragic. 
And don't you know you're more than that? This kind of teaching is all around us. We are told over and over again, and especially young people hear this and probably are a little more inclined to believe it. We are told that our urges and our feelings and our attractions are in there in us because that's who we really are. And you should be you, man. You should respond to those urges and feelings that are in you and live them out, give, give them room to breathe, see where it leads you. The right, and they should be followed, that's who you really are. That is especially true in the all areas related to sensual and sexual pleasure today. It's what's behind all same-sex attraction, same-sex temptation, behind all the gender issues in our world today. A person says, I feel and the narrative around it says, therefore you are, go for it. Do you realize that we don't actually need to argue with anybody about what they feel? Okay. I feel things, you feel things, we all feel things, we all sense things, we all have pulls and desires and interests and urges and some things we know where they came from, some things we don't, they just are in us. Okay. It is worth pointing out that and hasn't your experience also been that some things you used to really feel an urge for, you don't anymore? And some things you never even thought of, now you do want? So those feelings and urges change, don't they? Yes, they do. They change over time. But we don't need to argue with that. We just need to say, what of them? What's true of what you feel? You're a human being. You're not an animal. You, you can evaluate what you feel and what's rising up in you, and you can make a choice either to embrace it or to say no to it. You don't have to follow your instincts. Who you are is not what you feel. You're a human. You're above that. We, we can engage with people like that and talk about people and talk about people and urge them. Something outside of us should Give us an answer as to what is the truth about what I feel. Something outside of us. I read an article, I can't remember where, in some, some Christian publications last week, so maybe you read it too. It came, came to me on the internet, email. Somebody was writing about this point, and they used an illustration of navigating a ship at night Navigating a ship at night based on the lantern hanging on the bow of the ship. We just, we steer through the night and how we know where we're going is we just follow that light. We're always right behind it. We're doing great. So it seems until the sun comes up and you realize I was following something right here on the ship, of course. I'm just following what is in me already or what's in my friends right around me. I need something outside of me. I need a light that's not on the boat. And God says, he is that light. A good and wise and gracious light who has shown that he's good and wise and gracious, particularly by showing his character in the cross. But he's the outside source that says, I'm the one you should ask about what to make of what you feel. 
We need to understand this for ourselves and be able to talk about this with other people. The narrative out there says that you are, it won't use this language because it would be very discouraging, but the narrative out there says that you are an animal and what you feel is what you are and you should follow that. And the true answer is, no, you are not. You are a person. What's unique and glorious and special about you is that you can choose against your feelings. God wants us to pursue truth and to maybe sometimes choose against our feelings and to help us with that. He's more than just told us that we should, more than just told us how he made us. He's actually given us help in the gospel. The gospel is the way that God helps us evaluate, to step aside and evaluate what is true of what I feel and maybe to choose against our feelings. That takes some power that is not naturally in us now in our fallen natures. And so God helps us in the gospel. Christ came to earth, himself submitted himself to death on the cross to liberate you to live as a blossoming image bearer of God to be renewed and restored into the fullness of God's image, to be fully human, to live as people who know now and then can choose wisely now to follow God even when what our feelings say, what the world around us says is something other. To live as people who know that our great joy is tied up in honoring God and serving his people. That takes power and God's provided that for us in the gospel. Beware of any teaching that would push you in the other direction and turn a person into a merely strong-willed creature of instinct. God's gospel makes us fully human. That's the first point. Secondly, then, beware the false teaching that turns should be servants into users, even predators. Beware the false teaching that turns should be servants into users, even predators. Verse 13 begins to move towards a second concern, but at first it seems like more of the first concern. Middle of the verse, he says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, pleasure in reveling itself is not wrong. Now, in the context of this book, where he's talked so much about sensual pleasure, you kind of get a feeling that he's probably meaning something wrong, and he is, but it's not automatically wrong. And some of those words can be attached to, like, the feasts of God. It, it is all right to enjoy a party. But in this context, we kind of get a feeling he's going somewhere else, and then he adds in, in the daytime even. Something's wrong about the order there. Parties belong in their proper place, not during the workday, not during the daytime. There's, there's something here that's off, something that's out of order. And then he goes on to make that even more clear. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. He's writing to the church about them. They are blots and blemishes in their deceptions as they feast with you. What he's alluding to is the meals. They called them the love feasts. We've come to call them the Lord's Supper, or we call it communion now. But 
before it was just a little piece of bread and a little cup, it was a full meal. It was the Lord's Supper. For the first several centuries of the church history, it was, it was a full meal in which the church gathered together and celebrated what God had done, loving us in the gospel and how he'd made us a community of people who love one another. And so they called them love feasts. And the church is all there doing this regularly, and the false teachers are there too. But the false teachers are an improper, ugly stain on the gathering because there's a problem here. We, the church, Peter's saying to them, we're there to revel in the celebration of the love and the gospel. They are there to revel in a deception. And the word for deception and the word for love feasts are very close. There is a deliberate wordplay here. The church has come to worship and deceiving, they've come for pleasure. To put it in a different way, they've come dressed in camouflage because they're there to hunt. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So see the setting here. You've got this meal, this whole, this big church meal, and the leaders would be serving the meal, and as false teachers, they're probably in some leadership positions, and so they probably have a role in the service of this meal. They're passing out the various elements. They hand out the cup smiling, but his eye, as he's handing out the cup smiling, his eye is sizing up every woman in the room. And his eye is insatiable, sinful adultery. He's hunting, smiling, hunting. He's got a sexual instinct in him that he believes he's meant to fulfill. Driven for it, it's who I am. It's right. And if I can, then I will. Who can I? He's hunting. Who can I entice? Who's vulnerable to my lure? Today, we use words like grooming to describe the process that a predator undertakes to prepare his prey. That language isn't here, obviously, but the process is. Who can he entice? Someone who's unsteady. He entices an unsteady soul, it says, of course. Maybe somebody who's young, or too trusting, or unwise, or hurting in some way, vulnerable. So many people who are preyed upon and who fall victim to this sort of a predator have a number of vulnerabilities. In, in some way, they've got some sort of a hurt that the predator finds, and instead of, as a leader in the church, noticing the hurt, the wound, the, the vulnerability, and covering it, shielding it, protecting it, or knitting it together for healing, he finds it, he looks, he's looking, he's looking, looking, he finds it, he steps in, he exploits it to fill it for himself. Praying upon the weakness, the unsteadiness, maybe the youth. Leaders in the church are given to heal and to bind up to strengthen the flock, to do it good for God, not to exploit it and to use it for self, to consume the flock. It is so remarkably greedy, so self-serving. 
And these ones, it says, are very, very good at. They are well practiced in greed, hearts trained. That's how they've become wired. They've cut a deep groove of greed in their heart, and they, they look at all of the world, look at every relationship and all the people around them, that all this exists for me, to satisfy something in me, and the things that are in me are right and are meant to be fulfilled, so how can I? I can use everything that I've got to satisfy me. It's a greedy outlook on the world. It is so ugly and so destructive and so evil. It's the path that they walk. They used to walk with us. But no more. Verse 15, now they walk like Balaam. Again, like Jude does, Peter points out the continuity between these modern false teachers and the old false prophet Balaam. You read about that story in Numbers 22. The conclusion of it is in chapter 31. Balaam was hired, briefly, Balaam was hired to pronounce a prophetic curse on Israel. And at first he didn't, but then eventually he did, and part of what he did for the money was teach Israel's enemies how to use sexual temptation as a destructive lure. He knew something about that, and he told, taught them what he knew, and they paid him. And God gave voice to a speechless donkey, to a beast, the irony of it. A dumb donkey spoke to confront him and bring about his rebuke. Now, Balaam did it anyway, eventually. Shouldn't have, but he did, and he was eventually destroyed. Such is the warning to all who are like Balaam, who for the sake of personal profit afflict the people of God. Predators will be dealt with. God sees and he judges, often now, but always at the end. Okay, so let's settle here and ask, why is this here? Do you feel a little bit of the, why is this here? Like, there's something in this that, as I'm talking about this, and there's all this heat here, it's kind of like, why is, okay, there's a little bit of the reason it's here, a little bit, that there's something here that's a warning about predators, in part, yes. Watch out for them. And it's also a little bit of a warning for predators. Watch out. God sees, and a man reaps what he sows. So there is that. But really, there's, there's something more here than just that. Because you realize that almost everybody reading this, then or now, almost everybody that I would say this to hearing this now, we all agree that's wrong. And Peter hasn't suddenly like left off onto a tangent, you know, let, let me actually condemn this predatory practice of greed as a side note. He's got a different purpose going on here. What he's actually trying to do is argue that the false teaching that these guys push is wrong. Remember, that's what he's getting at. And he's saying, essentially, it's wrong. And we can know it is because, look, it produces not just irrational creatures of instinct, the first point, 
but also those people as they walk a spectrum and get deeper and deeper into that, it also ends up that they are well-practiced, deeply greedy people who live for me and use other people. Look what happens when you follow this teaching. Worst case scenario, what you get out of this is predators, but long, long before the worst case scenario, you naturally get people who live for instinct and then see that the world exists and is to be used to satisfy self. You get users out of this teaching. Animals live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world where might makes right and the big dog ends up on top. The lion eats the lamb. We don't want a world like that. And thankfully, we don't fully have the worst of that kind of a world yet. God's common grace has restrained that in our world. There's still a sense of something better here, but what Peter's teaching would point out for us, and what I'm trying to like press on a little bit this morning, is that if you walk into this, and if and as more and more people come to think that there is no coming day of judgment, And if and as more and more people then come to think that Christ isn't who he claims and he isn't in heaven reigning and there isn't any divine law that stands outside of us and holds us to it, then we are actually in the world following only the lantern on the bow of the boat and might makes right. That's who I am, and I should seek to satisfy that in any way that I can. Not everybody lives there, thankfully. The grace of God has held us back from that, but logically, there's no reason not to. If the standards that our society sets up around me don't work for me, I'll change the standards if I can, or get with people who agree. That's the animal kingdom right there. It not only degrades me, but it turns me into somebody who uses everyone else and destroys them for my own gain. That is an ugly world. That would be devastating. And the false teachers out here, the, the, method, the, the message they are pressing pulls us to that. If we walk it out far enough, if we walk it out consistently enough, they are simply living out what they believe using others to satisfy themselves. You look at that and you see it is ugly and wrong and we all know it, but Peter's point, where did that come from? If the fruit is bad, the root that nourished it is also bad. A life of instinct driven in self-focus is wrong and it's terrible. And God means to keep us from it, but it's the natural outcome of denying the God of the gospel. And so then the gospel is the natural antidote to this kind of life of greed. I'll close with this. 
The gospel is the way that God creates of us servants who live for and love others rather than greedy users who live for and love me. The gospel is the way that God creates of people, servants who live for and love others. Christ, the almighty, glorious God, did not count that as something to be held on to, but set that aside and became a humble servant here and now. He gave up his life even here and now for the sake of the joy set before him in heaven. He went to the cross to pay for our sin and we realize all the different ways that we have actually lived for self and we have used and utilized others at their expense for my benefit. You see that, you see, I have sin here to answer for and Christ says, I've answered for it. That's why I came to serve you, to answer for all that sin, to lift it off of you, to set you free. He didn't come to use us, but to serve us. And particularly then at the cross, he pays for our sin and sets us free from the need to provide for our own lives. There is no need for greed because he covers me now. He covers you now, and he covers you in heaven in fullness of joy. That sets you free to provide life, not for yourself, but for others. It frees you from the predators and all their effect on you, but also from the need to be any kind of a predator yourself. Because you're fine. You're safe in his hands. That's the gospel. That's the, one of the effects of the gospel is that it frees you to be a loving servant. That's how God provides the power in you to renew you in his image so that you can live fully, gloriously human as a lover and a servant, not a user and an abuser. So all of this, as I write this and preach this, I kind of feel like, I probably lost half of the half of the people half the way through. <laughs> it's kind of my concern. So let me try to sum it up like this. You are not a dog in a person suit. You're human. And so is everybody around you. One of the ways we can help them is to push them towards full humanity and explain to them that the gospel is how we get there. The gospel is not restricting of human nature, it's enhancing of it, it's beautifying of it. And it'll make us servants rather than slaves, lovers rather than users. That's the good news. Let me pray. Father, where all this is complicated, will you clarify it? And will you particularly make it relevant for those who are being lured by the false message? Maybe us here, maybe those around us that we can be ambassadors towards. 
Make us people who shine off your image and help others to find it too. Thank you, Lord. Trust yourself. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.